Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here, and uh, glad to have you as part of the the class this morning. The, this morning, we're going to delve into the last portion of Colossians chapter 1. It's taken us four or five weeks to get to this point or to get through this. Um, this is a section in which a great mystery is revealed. Uh, it, it's, you can, can read that, the text uh, also in, um, uh, in Ephesians chapter uh, 3, verses 1 through 13. And, and, uh, but Colossians is kind of an abridged version of that. So when you have an opportunity, uh, and, and not right now, uh, I encourage you to, to read the text in Ephesians, and it, it gives you a, a, a kind of a full, more full version of what we find here in, in Colossians 1. But I'm sure you'll pick up some things that I don't have time to cover uh, this morning. Uh, so let's get started uh, by reading uh, from the text. If you've you got your Bibles and you want to turn to uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. And of course, this is Paul writing. And he said, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his, this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy and His power, that he powerfully works within me. Let's uh, get started here with a word of prayer, okay? Lord, my prayer this morning is that of the Apostle Paul, that according to the riches of your glory, you may strengthen us with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Let me ask you a question this morning. Would you uh, rather suffer or live a, comfort, a life of comfort and ease? <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's a Sunday school answer to that question. <laughs> And then there's a real answer that most of us would probably lean toward in, in that. But in our passage today, the Apostle Paul begins with the, the Sunday school answer. But uh, as strange as it seems, he means it. He means it. Do, do, do you think the Bible might tell us why? Why would someone prefer... Uh, or choose to, to take a life of suffering as opposed to a life of, of comfort and ease. Well, 
to understand the Apostle Paul, let's, let's take a look at his credentials first. I want you to go back a few pages in your, your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Just a few pages. If you turn too much, you'll, you'll get past it. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Paul uh, talks about why he doesn't have confidence in his flesh. And he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Before he met Jesus, uh, Paul was quite the man quite the influential man in the Jewish community around there. Pharisee of the Pharisees, he says, from the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew, uh, and in all of these things, that we, the kind of thing that would have raised him to the upper echelons of Jewish culture of his day. And then he encountered Jesus. And after his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, his life changed dramatically. Once he began proclaiming Christ as, as Lord, um, the, t the tide of his life changed. He, he suffered much hardship. He was beaten and stoned. He was conspired against and eventually thrown in jail. He was in prison when he wrote this epistle. This is one of his, his prison epistles that, uh, uh, that he wrote. And there's a summary of, of uh, all of that in uh, somewhat of a summary anyway, in 2 Corinthians. I, I encourage you to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For those that are enduring suffering, chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians is a, is a wonderful place to go. But I'd like for you to look at verses 8 and 9. Well, I'm going to back up. Let's go to verse 7 too. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Christ, so that the life of Christ may also be manifest in our body. Look at this. Uh, there's words again, uh, afflicted, crushed, persecuted, perplexed, but not in despair, not forsaken, not destroyed. Why would Paul rather live a life of suffering than a life of comfort? He gives some pretty good answers in that same chapter down in verses 10 through 15. Just keep going here. And it says, it, they are always carrying about in the body the death of, of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, 
but life in you. Verse 11, he, he says it's because he wants uh, the life of Jesus to be seen in his life. He wants it to be seen by, by others uh, through his own life. And then in verse 14, he factors in the, the promise of the resurrection. Paul envisions himself standing with all the believers. He says it's for their sake that they might know his, Christ's grace, and in return have Jesus receive thanksgiving and glory as a result of that. So that's, that's fabulous. But he isn't, he isn't finished there. If, if we read on to verse 15 and uh, in, in verse 15 and, and on, he says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends more to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You notice that, that in those verses, Paul uh, is essentially weighing those things on a, on a scale. And he's seeing all this, this horrible persecution and, and suffering that, that he's in, in enduring. Um, and, and he's saying, but it is far outweighed by the, the, the promise of, of the resurrection, the promise of one day standing face to face with Christ, with all the believers, and seeing uh, all that, uh, that is of, of, of Christ. And so... To him, he, he looks at the temporal versus the eternal, and he chooses the eternal. Uh, and, and the eternal so often comes at a cost uh, to do that well, but that's what he does. Paul's energized with his eye on eternity, and he's looking ahead so that when the things of earth grow dim and fade away into the light of eternity, um, that's when he has his reward. That's when he has his satisfaction. Now, uh, Paul's letters are loaded. As you read through the, the, uh, the epistles, they're, they're loaded with reasons to choose suffering over comfort. And I, I'd like for us to look at a few, and I've asked some of you to, to read some verses this morning. I'd like to start with Romans 5.3. I don't know who has what, but uh, Russ... Romans 5.3. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Okay. So suffering produces perseverance. It produces endurance uh, in, the, in the life. I, uh, James calls us to, to rejoice in, in times of, of trial. And for that very reason, you may have heard the, the illustration given before of, of the butterfly, that if you take a butterfly and you find a cocoon and you, you cut that cocoon open, you put the butterfly on a log and it'll dry up and die. But as it struggles to break free of that, 
uh, that cocoon and finally break through it, it comes through uh, as a, a full, mature, strengthened butterfly ready to, to fly. Um, we rejoice in our, in our sufferings. They produce endurance. Let's look at Ephesians 3.13. Well, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Okay. It's for His glory. Suffering has an enduring purpose. And there's so many things in our lives that really, you know, so many things that, that we undertake in our lives that we might have to ask the question, why do we do that? What is the purpose of that? Is there an eternal purpose to that? And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll have to say no. Everything that we have invested in in this area is just just for, for temporal enjoyment or uh, for, to meet temporal need. But it's not for an eternal purpose. You know, all of us need an eternal purpose. We need to know that our life on earth counts for something, that it has value and worth uh, for an eternal reason. Let's look at 2 Timothy 1.8. Who has that? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Okay. So one of the reasons that we suffer sometimes is for the, the opportunity that suffering gives us to give testimony to the glory of God. Um, many people have, have uh, shared with me uh, through the years that uh, as they've endured a, a sickness or a health issue of some sort, they've been able to give testimony to the doctors who cared for them and, and to others of the, of the power of God at work within them and, and the, their belief in the gospel. Uh, suffering provides that opportunity. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2.9. For which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained, like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Okay. Uh, Keith, read the verse just prior to that, too. I think we missed the context. Um, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Okay, so Paul writes to Timothy here, talks about the value of suffering uh, on account of Jesus' suffering, on account of who Jesus is and what he's done. So, so sometimes it's, uh, we, we just simply look at it and, and say, why, where's the value in, in suffering? Because it honors Christ who suffered for us. And that's a part of it as well. Second Timothy four five. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. All right. So in that case, he's he's simply uh, encouraging uh, Timothy again, and and saying sometimes in order to fulfill your ministry and fulfill what God's given to you to do, it requires suffering. It, it is an investment that is made 
in that. So there's a few things that the Bible uh, make the, uh, the Bible answer to why choose suffering over comfort. A good one. In the 24th verse of uh, our passage in Colossians, uh, chapter 1, there's, there's more. Um, let's go back to Colossians again. Look at verse 24. And he said, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So it's his, uh, a, a couple of things there that he mentions is that his sufferings are for the sake of the church. Sake of the church. He, he talks to the, those that he's writing to, and he says, It's for you that I, that I suffer. But he goes on beyond that, too, and he says that his sufferings provide uh, what was lacking uh, for, them, for their sake, in, uh, for the sake of the body, in Christ's suffering. I don't know about you, I, I read that passage and, and I think, well, it sounds a little bit like Paul's putting his responsibility for salvation on a, on a level of fixing what Christ didn't do. It's kind of blasphemous. Sounds a little bit arrogant. Um, there's an immediate question that comes to mind uh, when we read that, that, that statement. What would that be for you? What would the question be that you might ask in regard to, to Paul's statement about fulfilling what was lacking in, in, in the suffering of Christ? Anybody got an answer for that one? Question that comes to me, I, I, I would ask, was Jesus' death on the cross somehow insufficient to provide for our salvation? Was Jesus not telling the truth when he prayed in John chapter 17, verse 4, and he said, praying to the Father, he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Does his resurrection from the dead really provide us with rock-solid hope for our own eternal life? If verse 25 causes you to... to uh, Scratch your head and wrinkle up your brow a little bit when you read that. Uh, it's, it's for good cause. I understand that. It made me do that too. But, but let me explain what Paul's talking about there. And I think it'll become clear. But bef before I uh, explain that, I, I want you to know that I'm going to make two huge assumptions. All right? The first one is this that you were listening two weeks ago when I explained the three ways in which God has revealed Himself to mankind. Can I make that assumption? You were listening. Now here's the second one. Is that you remember what I said. <laughs> Alright? So, I'll, I'll stir your memory with a clue. This is quiz time. How does Psalm 19 tell us God reveals Himself to mankind. 
Psalm 19. How does that tell you that God reveals himself to mankind? Through creation. Absolutely. Through creation. In Colossians chapter 1, in verse 15, we see God revealed in another way. What way is that? I heard both of those. They're both correct. I'm going to accept the second one. Jesus. Through uh, Chapter 1, verse 15 tells us that Jesus is the exact image of God. So that when we see, when we see Jesus, we see God in His exact image. And in order to know God, we have to know Jesus. Knowing the creation is not enough, that He's the Creator. We don't know Him as in His entirety. We have to see Jesus. But there's still a third way, and, and Carolyn, I think it was you that mentioned it. The third way in which God reveals Himself is that God reveals Himself through His Word. Now, I'm going to have to think through this a little bit. The Bible is the Word of God. It teaches us so much about God, about who God is. That it reveals His very words. We can read through the, the Psalms and we recognize it, that it, the Bible in, informs us of his, his will. The Bible amazes us with the stories of, of His mighty works. And it even gives us in, insight into His ways. I always remember a, a friend of mine in, in a pastorate who was at his ordination council got hit with a difficult question that the Bible doesn't clearly answer. And he acknowledged that. He said, the, the Bible doesn't give us a clear answer to that. But with what I know of God, here's how I would answer that question. Can we do that? Sure we can. Because the Bible tells us that the, the ways in which God works. We can't always, uh, He doesn't always work in the same way. But in some areas, we can, can look at that. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 2.15, it tells us to, to study and handle the Word. 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, handle the Word well. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that God breathed out every word of Scripture. And Peter reinforces this as, as well. But the Word was, was breathed out to the Bible writers the authors of the various books of the Bible, as wind moves a sailboat across the sea. Uh, the, so that when we, we read 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, God breathed and, those, and, and guided those writers, those biblical writers along as they wrote. So they wrote in their, in their uh, style, in their language, um, but they wrote exactly what God wanted them to write. He guided them in that. And so the Word is, is profitable uh, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. So when Jesus ministered on earth and went to the cross in our place, the Word of God was not completed, was it? The Gospels in the, the New Testament, the entire New Testament was written after Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins. Prior to that, uh, the only Scriptures were had were, were the, the things that are in the Old Testament, and that hadn't all been uh, what we call canonized yet at that point. But they had the, the books of the law, the books of Moses and the Torah, and, and they, they had certain things, and there were uh, a lot that was known, but we didn't have any of the New Testament at that time. So if there was anything that was lacking in Christ's suffering um, for, the, for the body, the church, it was that the good news of the gospel was not known, was not fully known. And that's no slight in any way on Jesus. In not, in not in one bit. There's certainly no condemnation due. Jesus' purpose for putting on human flesh was to keep the promise of a Savior. It was not His responsibility to complete the revelation of the Word. His part in revelation was uh, on earth, uh, it was to, to live out the Word. Now, Jesus is the, the, the embodiment of the Word. Yeah, he, another name that we could use for Him is the Word. But as far as the written Word that we have, uh, God chose to use, uh, uh, to, to partner up with human beings. And particularly, uh, Paul was chief among them. That's why Paul was willing to suffer. His mission, as we read in the last portion of verse 25, was to make the Word of God fully known. It was not fully known until that time. I want you to note in verses 26 and 27, the Word just uh, revealed to the saints has been a mystery hidden for ages and generations. Let's read it. Verses 26 and 27 he said, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his ministry, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What Paul's saying is that there's, there's a great mystery here that they don't know and don't understand. How many of you have, have seen... Uh, in the last year or so, the uh, television commercials for uh, Coventry Direct. Any of you seen those? If you haven't, let me explain them, and maybe you, you will. Those re in, in those commercials, you have a retiree, sometimes one, sometimes a couple. They're shown in different scenes, wishing they had more available funds in their, in their, in their retirement. And all the while, there are two miners right underneath them uh, mining away in, in a gold mine. And, and the right retirees don't realize that they can sell their life insurance policies for cash. 
And they can get cash and have that on hand. And one miner looks at the other and he says, they don't realize they're sitting on a gold mine. He says, you're sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> but they can't hear. Well, in many ways, the Gentiles were sitting on a gold mine. And until Paul completed the work that Jesus began, they didn't know it. It was a, it was a, a, a mystery. When the time was right, Jesus uh, appeared to the Pharisee Saul, which is what Paul's name was as a Jew, and, and gave him a message to proclaim. He opened his eyes to the truth. He made him a messenger to the Gentiles so that he might unveil to them the riches of the glory of this mystery that had been hidden for ages and generations past. What is that message? Until this time, the Jews longed for their Messiah. Jehovah was the God of the Jews, not the Gentiles. Now Paul has been appointed to unveil this mystery, which includes the Gentiles. That mystery being Christ in you, the hope of glory. Those, uh, think about that for uh, a moment. To think Christ in you, the hope of glory. Those, those words just kind of roll sweetly off the tongue. It's a, it, it's a phrase that you could, uh, could use uh, in, in a lot of different situations just uh, as, a, as a theme of some sort. But, um, but those words are, are a rich description of the gospel. Take a closer look at it. And I, I wanna, I'd like to start at the end of the phrase with the word glory. We use that word often in, in various forms. Sometimes people use it uh, as an expression of excitement. I don't hear that very often, but sometimes people would say, glory, or oh glory. Perhaps you've heard that used in that way. Um, it, it, but it, it's, it's important to know that uh, it's an important part of our, our Newcastle uh, mission statement. Uh, Newcastle exists to glorify God by growing deeper and, and reaching farther. So part of our purpose as a church is to bring glory to God. That's the aim of the Christian life. All of us should recognize that our primary function as believers, is to bring glory to, to God and bring glory to, to Christ in all these things. In addition to those uses of, of the word glory, um, we want to experience glory as a place. Again, it's not something that you hear quite as much anymore, or maybe it's just that I don't listen to the same music anymore that I used to, but in years past, uh, some of the, the hymn writers and, and uh, songwriters used to sing about glory land in reference to heaven. Uh, what makes heaven, heaven, what makes heaven glory is the presence of the Lord. Uh, 
One of the hymns is written by, uh, that expresses that is written by a guy named Charles Gabriel. It's a hymn that's actually in our, our hymn book. And, and the chorus goes like this. Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face. Oh, that will be glory, be glory for me. Glory is the centerpiece of Christian hope. And it's available to Jews and to Gentiles like you and I alike. Look at the word hope. I, I know you've been uh, rightly taught that hope is an uncertain dream. It's is a um, is is not an uncertain dream. Let me correct that. It's confidently held certainty that simply hasn't yet come to pass. Something that we hope for, but we know it's going to happen eventually. Gospel hope is a guarantee of glory. It's one of the, the great motivators of the Christian life. Hope of glory sustains us through suffering. It's Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4. It encourages us, as it did the apostles, to face trials and, and tribulations. One of the great apologetic arguments for the, for the gospel is to know that, that the, uh, the men and women who walked with Jesus, who saw whom, Him, who, who listened to Him speak, were willing to suffer and die for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who would do that for someone who is just a, a charlatan? Uh, I would not. Hope comforts us in times of loss, and sorrow. Paul declares in, in 1 Thessalonians 4 that, that believers grieve differently than those who have no hope. Hope sustains life itself. People will often tell you that when a person dies after a long experience of, of loss and sorrow, that they gave up hope. Hope sustains life. But hope is futile unless it's anchored in something or, or someone. Unless there's a reason to believe that that hope is real. It, it's futile. It's, it's useless. Paul wrote that about the resurrection. He said, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, we're to be pitied for our hope. We have no reason for hope. The hope of glory is informed by the Scriptures, but it's anchored in Christ. Again, we, we turn to a hymn writer who, who testifies, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Now, don't be confused in that because you can, you can translate that phrase into to everyday uh, living and, and come up with the wrong reason for hope. Some people believe that salvation comes through Jesus' blood and our righteousness. That Christ died on the cross, but, if, but we need to be righteous. And, and our own righteousness earns us our place 
in heaven. It, it's the thing that t tilts the scale to, in our favor. But that's not what scriptures teach. Paul is very careful to say, and I want you to notice this in this little phrase that we've been repeating, Christ in you. I want you to notice that he didn't say Christ and you. He said Christ in you is the hope of glory. It's just a little word that reminds us that salvation is totally and completely a gift of God's grace. Totally separate from our own works. Our works follow. Our faith is dead without works, as James tells us. But our works do not earn our place in heaven. That's totally the work of God, uh, Christ's work on the cross and God's grace. Beyond that, we don't want to miss the reminder that as believers, God's Spirit dwells within us and empowers us. That's an important part of this text as well. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God uh, would empower people for a, a, a time and then depart. We have a case of, uh, of King Saul. Remember that God, uh, here, here was, was King Saul, God chose him to be the, or the people, uh, God appointed him as the, the, at the, by the people's wishes as the first king over Israel. He, he stood head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. He looked like the perfect uh, candidate for the job. And, and he trusted God, and he honored God, and he obeyed God to a point. And then he began to take things into his own hands and, and uh, to get impatient with God. And as a result of that, God's spirit departed from him. Saul no longer had the, the power or the, the, the wisdom or even the, the, the godly uh, character that he had when the Holy Spirit was on him. And the Holy Spirit had departed. Other, other uh, prophets and, and Moses are examples of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Moses couldn't have performed the miracles that he did in Egypt when God sent him there and, and, and he didn't have any power in himself. Remember when God first encountered Moses in the wilderness at the burning bush and, he, and, and he, uh, Moses had, had been raised in, in Egypt and had fled and he'd been out in the wilderness now for 40 years tending sheep and God said, I'm going to send you back to Egypt again to, to set my people free. <laughs> And Moses stuttered, you know, no, I, I, I can't speak. I, you know, I can't do it, God. I, but God empowered him to do that. And God enabled him a different way. God enabled him with his, his brother Aaron as, as well to help in that regard. But Paul reveals in this passage a, a very unfamiliar truth for believers, and that is Christ in you. Christ, the Spirit of God in you. That's an awesome thought. That it's one that, that would be worthwhile for us as individuals to just sit and meditate on us. What does it mean to have Christ in you? 
especially if we go back and, and look uh, again at Colossians 1.19 that tells us that in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Don't, remember, don't forget that Christ is God. The fullness of God was in Christ. And now the fullness of God dwells within you and me as believers in, in Christ. That is an awesome, awesome truth. So, verse 28 of our text. So that's the message that Paul had to share. Was that, was, was that of, of Christ in you, the hope of glory. In verse 28 then, our text could begin with therefore. And, and I, I thought about that when I, I read it the first time. I thought, why doesn't he say therefore? Because it seems to be a continuation of that thought, but he does. He doesn't. He simply starts. If you look at verse twenty-eight, with the words "Him we proclaim." Him we proclaim. I think for, for me, when I when I look at that question, I I think that that maintains the emphasis on Jesus, Him, Jesus, Christ. He is the preeminent one whom we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 28 presents a, a clear, balanced approach to Christian ministry as well. He's saying Christ is the reason that we do this, it's, and, but there are, are, there's a balance to, to the ministry. And uh, it involves proclamation, broadcasting the truth about Jesus to, to the world. It doesn't do any good to know that Christ in you is the hope of glory if you don't proclaim that to the world. And so that was what the, the mission that Christ took on was to to, to breathe, be that person who's uh, proclaiming the word. It involves warning not to reject Christ as Lord and, and, and fall for false teachers. Remember, that was the problem that was facing the, uh, the church at Colossae. It was the, the false teachers that uh, were injecting false doctrine into the midst of them. But then balanced ministry also includes teaching in order to guide Christ followers to maturity, uh, to, to present them before Christ as mature believers. That's the work of, of, uh, of the church, not just as a local church, as a building. In other words, it's not the senior pastor's job alone to present all the believers of the church to Christ in full maturity. Uh, God has provided the church and provided individuals to, to facilitate that and to help that. Um, but it's not their job alone. This is, is the incredible calling at the heart of why Paul can joyfully suffer. If you look at verse 29... It states clearly that for this, for this, for what? 
for the at the end of verse 28 it says for this the idea of presenting every believer or everyone mature in Christ for this that's the, the this in this he said for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me I want you to notice in, in closing that we all have a responsibility in these areas. And we all might be like Moses, standing at the burning bush saying, God, I can't do that. I, I can't proclaim your word. I can't warn other people. I can't bring people to maturity. I don't know how I would go about doing that. I have no idea what I would do. I cannot do that in my own strength. But ministry in indeed is indeed a struggle at times. But God, according to verse 29, provides the strength, the energy, the power for anything that he asks us to do for anything that he asks us to do. There's a um, verse, I don't know where I put it in my notes, I lost track of it, but in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I want you to note that Luke quotes the words of Jesus to his disciples and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, right where they were at, in Judea, in the area just outside Jerusalem, in Samaria, the area around that, and into the, to the uh, uttermost portions to the end of the, the earth, he says. So that, that's part of a, of a great commission that we see applying not just to the apostles, but to all of us as, as believers. This weekend, just to encourage you in that way, in uh, the devotional New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp, um, he led the reading of the day with words that, that reinforce this truth. And I just want to share them with you. He said, No need to fear what God will ask of you, because of the, in the asking is always the promise of grace to empower your heart and hands. So whether God asks you to live a life of comfort or live a life of suffering in order to communicate His words. No, no need to fear. God will provide what you need for that. He will give you the grace to empower your heart and hands. And further into the devotional, he, said, he writes this, The God of glory and grace, who calls His people to do His will on earth, always goes with them as they obey His calling. He never sends without going to. When He sends sends you. He doesn't give you a bunch of stuff to help you along the way. He always gives you Himself because He is what you need. And He alone can give you what is required. As believers, we have incur incredibly good news to share. That news is Christ in you the hope of glory. It's a message of unsearchable riches in Christ uh, beyond our, our understanding, but available to all who will respond to God's grace. That's the gospel. That's a, a message worthy of, of a great effort to proclaim, even if it involves hardship and suffering. Paul was willing to suffer for it. 
Let me close us in prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power that works within him, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We've got uh, just about enough time